Section 42 of Europe Revised. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Europe Revised by Irvin S. Cobb. Chapter 20. The Combustible Captain of Vienna. Our guide in Vienna was the most stupid human being I ever saw. He was profoundly ignorant on a tremendously wide range of subjects. He had a most complete repertoire of ignorance. He must have spent years of study to store up so much interesting misinformation. This guide was much addicted to indulgence of a peculiar form of twisted English, and at odd moments given to the consumption of a delicacy of strictly Germanic origin, known in the language of the Teutons as a Rollmops. A Rollmops consisted of a large dilled cucumber, with a pickled herring coiled round it ready to strike, in the design of the rattlesnake and pine-tree flag of the Revolution, the motto in both instances being in effect, Don't monkey with the buzz-saw. He carried his roll-mops in his pocket, and frequently, in art galleries or elsewhere, would draw it out and nibble it, while disseminating inaccuracies touching on pictures and statues and things. Among other places, he took us to the oldest church in Vienna. As I now recollect, it was six hundred years old. No, on second thought, I will say it must have been older than that. No church could possibly become so moldy and mangy-looking as that church in only six hundred years. The object in this church that interested me most was contained in an ornate glass case, placed near the altar and alongside the relics held to be sacred. It did not exactly please me to gaze at this article, but the thing had a fascination for me, I will not deny that. It seems that a couple of centuries ago there was an officer in Vienna, a captain in rank and a Frenchman by birth, who, in the midst of disorders and licentiousness, lived so godly and so sanctified a life that his soldiers took it into their heads that he really was a saint, or at least had the making of a first-rate saint in him, and therefore must lead a charmed life. So thus runs the tale, some of them laid a wager with certain doubting Thomases, also soldiers, that neither by fire nor water, neither by rope nor poison, could he take harm to himself. Finally they decided on fire for the test. So they waited until he slept, those simple, honest, chuckle-headed chaps, and they slipped in with a lighted torch and touched him off. Well, sir, the joke certainly was on those soldiers. He burned up with all the spontaneous enthusiasm of a celluloid comb. For qualities of instantaneous combustion he must have been the equal of any small-town theatre that ever was built with one exit. He was practically a total loss, and there was no insurance. They still have him, or what is left of him, in that glass case. He did not exactly suffer martyrdom, though probably he personally did not notice any very great difference, and so he has not been canonized. Nevertheless, they have him there in that church. In all Europe I only saw one sight to match him, and that was down in the crypt under the church of the Capuchins in Rome where the dissected cadavers of four thousand dead, but not gone, monks are worked up into decorations. There are altars made of their skulls, and chandeliers made of their thigh-bones, frescoes of their spines, mosaics of their teeth and dried muscles, cozy corners of their femurs and pelvises and tibulae. There are two classes of travellers I would strongly advise not to visit the crypt of the Capuchin's church, those who are just about to have dinner and want to have it, and those who have just had dinner and want to keep on having it. At the royal palace in Vienna we saw the finest, largest, and gaudiest collection of crown jewels extant. 
That guide of ours seemed to think he had done his whole duty toward us, and could call it a day and knock off when he led us up to the jewel collections, where each case was surrounded by pop-eyed American tourists, taking on flesh at the sight of all those sparkles, and figuring up the grand total of their valuation in dollars, on the basis of so many hundreds of carats at so many hundreds of dollars a carat, until reason tottered on her throne, and did not have so very far to totter, either. The display of all those gems, however, did not especially excite me. There were too many of them, and they were too large. A blue Kimberley in a hotel clerk's shirt-front, or a pigeon-blood ruby on a faro-dealer's little finger, might hold my attention and win my admiration. But where jewels are piled up in heaps, like anthracite in a coal-bin, they thrill me no more than the anthracite would. A quart measure of diamonds on the average size of a big hailstone does not make me think of diamonds, but of hailstones. I could remain as calm in their presence as I should in the presence of a quart of cracked ice, in fact, calmer than I should remain in the presence of a quart of cracked ice in Italy, say, where there is not that much ice, cracked or otherwise. In Italy a bucket full of ice would be worth travelling miles to see. You could sell tickets for it. In one of the smaller rooms of the palace we came upon a casket containing a necklace of great smouldering rubies and a pair of bracelets to match. They were as big as cranberries, and as red as blood, as red as arterial blood. And when, on consulting the guide-book, we read the history of those rubies, the sight of them brought a picture to our minds, for they had been a part of the wedding dowry of Marie Antoinette. Once upon a time this necklace had spanned the slender white throat that was later to be sheared by the guillotine, and these bracelets had clasped the same white wrists that were roped together with an ell of hangman's hemp on the day the desolated queen rode, in her patched and shabby gown, to the Place de la Révolution. I had seen paintings in plenty and read descriptions galore of that last ride of the widow Capet going to her death in the tumbril, with the priest at her side and her poor fettered arms twisted behind her, and her white face bared to the jeers of the mob, but the physical presence of those precious, useless baubles, which had cost so much, and yet had brought so little for her, made more vivid to me than any picture or any story the most sublime tragedy of the terror, the tragedy of those two bound hands. End of section 42